Crossway Church Sermon Audio. You read this and you just can't get away from the centrality of the king in these narratives. In these recent chapters especially, we have this constant regnal formula that begins with the name of the king, who his father was, how old the new king was, how long he reigned, and whether he did right or evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's why this book is named Kings. And having seen that pattern, we would not be out of line to think that the kings would be called out as the reason for the exile of Israel. The kings dropped the ball, and that's why Israel was punished so severely. The kings failed to take responsibility, and that's why Israel was deported. But they're not. The responsibility falls to the people, and it lies with them. It's the people, the people, the rebellion of the people is the reason given for the exile. The people failed to step into it. To take it from the heart, to say, this is the responsibility the Lord's given to me. I must bear it. No one else can. I will step into it. See right here at the beginning of our text today. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hosea... The king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. The kings take a back seat in this summary passage. We're going to get to one of them in our reading, but they take a back seat. So the kings are representative, and surely they are held responsible by God, and in many ways they had the most responsibility for their failed leadership. But at the end of the day, it's the people that God holds responsible. Today people talk about so many nuances of power dynamics, and sometimes it it simply lets the responsible party off the hook. It gets so confused and convoluted. So often the, where the responsibility should fall, it, 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 that, that person is absolved of responsibility. People are confused today on so many levels. It's not just biological sex. It's on so many principles. And in many ways you can see this before a lot of the issues we face in the culture today. You could see the shifting of responsibility, the blaming of others rather than the person who's actually responsible. And part of the lesson we get right off the bat here is that we are always responsible for what we do. Now, the child may not be as responsible as the parent, but the child's still responsible for wrongdoing. And if the boss tells you to do something unethical, he should be in big trouble. But if you do that unethical thing... You are responsible too. And what we need to understand is that's the way God sees it. It may not be the way the courts see it today. It may not be the way the culture sees it today. 
but it is the way God sees it. If we do wrongdoing, we may be able to fool the people of the day, but we cannot fool God. He holds us responsible. And if that's the way the Lord looks at it, that is what true judgment is, and that is what we are called to live our lives according to. When we read the people, we recognize the corporate emphasis in that. And what I mean is that the people have rebelled in numbers large enough that these sins mark them as a group. And it's, it's, these sins mark the majority. It's the whole people of Israel. It's, it's this summary sentence. Surely there were some Israelites who remained faithful, who fulfilled the responsibilities God gave to them. But by and large, the people went with the current and the flow of the culture around them over the centuries to the point where God held them responsible as a people. These sins mark the vast majority of the people of Israel. Remember, these are the Lord's people. They had been redeemed and reclaimed from Egypt. Verse 7 goes on to say that very thing. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. These are the heirs of those that the Lord had rescued from Egypt, and yet they were removed from the Lord's presence, kicked out of the promised land. What happened to Israel, therefore, applies to God's people, the church today. So here is our proposal. Take responsibility because time is short. Take responsibility because time is short. We want to understand our responsibility and what went wrong for Israel and what God does about it. We want to understand all of that better. Let us therefore ask two questions of our text today. First of all, what were they held responsible for? What were they held responsible for? We're going to spend some time here because it's a significant portion of text and there's a lot in it. Now imagine going to the funeral of someone that had died an untimely death. When the memorial service begins, you're expecting a eulogy in the traditional form, something that reflects on and honors the life of the deceased. Instead, you are shocked to hear the speaker say, we will be remiss to fail to tell you about the foolishness that brought our departed to the grave. And then that speaker embarks on what might be considered a dirge, or worse, a listing of the faults of the man who died. That would be shocking, right? But that's essentially what the writer of Kings does for the nation of Israel. The ten tribes will never recover from this defeat and deportation. They receive no promise of return to the land as Judah will a couple of centuries later. Samaria will become a city and a region of mixed ethnicities and the distinct Israelite tribes that used to occupy this place will become unidentifiable, unknowable. This is what we're reading here, the historical death of these ten tribes of Israel. And what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is why this devastating event happened. 
So let's read this longer portion of the text. And it's going to take a few minutes to read it. And as I read it, see if you can keep up with the list of Israelite faults that are being read, that are being listed out in this dirge. See if you can number their failures to take up responsibility given to them by God. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 23. Let's read. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and Asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And, they, and there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and Sir Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divinations and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David... They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now let's take a moment, list out the sin we see here, and think through some application for our lives. And of course, there's more here that we can cover. Number one, spiritual forgetfulness and ingratitude. Forgetfulness and ingratitude. Israel failed to remember how the Lord had redeemed them, how He took them from slavery, brought them from death at the Red Sea to life on the other side. You remember the story, they're slaves in Egypt. They must do what the slave master tells them. They're being oppressed at a high level. These are a group of people that are truly 
oppressed in the moment. They know what it is. They know the lash of the whip. They, they know they're, they're, they're hanging on to life by a strand. They're trying to keep their families cared for. God comes in and delivers them powerfully, mightily. Amazing story of his miraculous deliverance. Brings them out from Egypt, brings them to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army, they have a change of heart. They come after them. Pharaoh's army, they're on the verge. The Israel's on the verge of being completely destroyed. God opens the Red Sea and brings them through on dry ground. It's like they died and had rose again to new life on the other side of the Red Sea. God closes the Red Sea and destroys the armies of Egypt. God delivers them. And on the other side of the Red Sea brings them to Mount Sinai, makes them a people that stand before him. They had a responsibility now to keep this redemption for the rest of their history, in their traditions, in their culture, in their life, in their hearts. They had a responsibility to keep this near and dear to themselves every day and in every way. God had not forgotten his salvation for them, and they should not have forgotten it either. That entire episode, the exodus from Egypt and the salvation of Israel, all of it had an even greater purpose than what Israel understood at the time. It all pointed to the salvation that you and I have in Christ Jesus. It was a foreshadowing of the gospel that saves us that freed us, that redeemed us and reclaimed us. The final, the true salvation that causes sinners like us to stand in the presence of a holy God. We say, I'm in Christ Jesus, the Savior, and we're given the gift of eternal life so that we have a hope in this life and in the one to come that will never be taken from us. So you and I have been given uh, an eternal, a glorious, a responsibility that transcends every other responsibility that we have ever thought about. To never forget and never forsake and never undervalue and to steadfastly grow in gratitude, remembrance, delight and joy and the salvation that God has given us, to live mindful of it at all times and in every way. The world may be content to keep a short memory of all things, but the Christian cannot afford it. The Christian is not allowed to forget what our Lord has done for us. Take this to heart, brothers and sisters. Lay hold of this responsibility. When God saved you, he put inside of you a responsibility to hold close the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ, your Lord. The longer we belong to Christ, the more mind share our Lord should get from us. Not less, not less. Our Christian freedom is not given to us so that we're free to forget all the grace given to us and live as if it's not there. But instead we're to live with an increasing knowledge and appreciation for the grace of God given to us. That was just the first one on this list. Here's another. 
Israel feared other gods instead of the God of Israel. They were mindful, worshipful, deferring to, and actually afraid of pagan deities, which were no gods at all. Remember that idol worship is imminently practical. We've touched on this a few times as, we, as we've gone through Old Testament texts. Sometimes it's hard to connect idol worship of ancient times to where we see idols in our own lives. The principle of it, remember this, the principle of idol worship is its imminent practicality. It comes from a worldview that if you can simply figure out the DNA of how the universe is put together, its elemental nature, then you can manipulate it according to your will. Isn't it interesting when you watch a superhero movie, which, goodness, aren't we tired of superhero movies? Come on, we should be tired of them by now. Goodness gracious. But when you watch them, they always combine the supernatural and the scientific, right? Why is that? Because it's supposed to be about the elemental nature of the universe. And if you can figure that out, well, then you can manipulate the universe to your ends. That's the way the pagan gods worked. Who is a geographical god of this particular reason? Call on his name. Serve him the way he wants to be served. Offer him the sacrifices he demands, and he will do for you what you want, and you will stay in that land. Who is the god of the storm? Serve him, and you'll avert catastrophe. Who is the goddess of reproduction? Serve her, and you'll have many babies to increase your household and tribe and work your fields and fill your armies with. You see? Idolatry, pagan idolatry, is always eminently practical. It's about the manipulation of the elements to get what we want. But guess what? The God of heaven I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get this word out, is unmanipulatable. Unmanipulatable. He calls for true worship. Worshippers that bowed before him and say, your will be done. You must increase. I must decrease. You see, you don't need the name of a pagan god to become an idol worshiper. You don't need to have a little shrine in your house. You just need to approach life in the same way. The what works mentality. Don't get me wrong, practicality is an important thing. We're taught that principle in Scripture in many ways. But the, but the what works mentality cannot be the primary way of orienting ourselves in life. Sometimes keeping Christ at the center of our lives is quite inconvenient in a fallen world. Sometimes it's not practical at all. But if you're to worship Him, you are continually met with the idea that there's something more important than whatever it is I want to get done. There's something more important than my own health. There's, certain, there's something more important than life itself. And that's the worship of Jesus Christ. This goes on and on, and we're certainly not going to be able to 
touch on all of them, but here's a third one. They adopted, the Israelites adopted the customs of pagan Canaanites, the customs of pagan Canaanites. When you page through these kings of Israel over the last many chapters, you get this kind of picture in general. They start from a place of rebellion against the Lord and they just keep going. And some of them did a bit better or worse than their predecessor, but in general, they don't change much. It's just a matter of, of degrees. It's not a complete turn. In Israel, probably the king uh, Jehu probably was the one who most radically departed from the evil ways of his forefathers, and yet he doesn't depart far enough. And it's not long after they just go right back to the evil ways. See, culture is a powerful force. Pagan culture is a powerful force. You get the idea that the people of Israel did not even understand how deeply immersed they were in the pagan mindset, in the pagan worldview. We talk about this sometimes. We talk about it's the air we breathe, the atmosphere we live in. It's incumbent on us to be analytical and to evaluate according to the Scriptures what the culture expects of us and whether it glorifies the Lord or not. We have a responsibility to be sure that our customary life is not lived in a way that separates us from the worship of God. It may be acceptable to the world. It may fit right in with them. But our lives need to be full of customs that point us to Him. And so here you are today on the Lord's day. What a glorious thing. You've gathered in the name of Jesus. The unbeliever says, oh, I think I'll use this day to get more work done or I'll use this day to get extra rest in or I'll use this day to party and recreate. But the church says, no, Jesus comes first and we orient our lives to him. Glorious, wonderful. That's, a, that's the place to begin. And we must keep going. They must keep going. Well, we don't have time to go through this entire, or to go uh, point by point. Let me list out for you many of the ways that we see Israel being held to account. This list in this dirge uh, about their passing. I'll list it out for you. As I go through the list, allow the Holy Spirit to keep working in you. You see, we can, we can learn what's right and wrong. We can learn what God is like, what he calls us to, by seeing what he was holding the Israelites responsible to. Yeah, there are differences in the, in, in the way it works out for the new covenant people. But the righteousness that God calls us to, it's the same. We're called to bring him glory through our lives. We have a responsibility to do that, to live for him. And we're to seize that responsibility, not let it flow through our fingers or sift through our fingers like sand. And so let me read this list to you, and maybe the Spirit will quicken you to say, I wonder if I'm doing that. Let me take a closer look there. Let me repent. That's what the kings should have done. It wasn't just a small departure from the customs, the atmosphere that the king prior to them had set into place. No, it needed to be a a real turning away from evil. Let me read this list to you. Israel tried to keep their wrongdoing secret. We see that in verse 9. 
Well, that's because they knew it was wrong, but they acted like it was right. Number five, they covered the land with high places. That's also in verse 9. They set up idolatrous pillars and wooden images everywhere. Verse 10, they burned incense on the high places. Verse 11, they served idols. Verse 12, they would not listen to the warnings of the prophets whom the Lord sent to them. Verses 13 and 14, they became stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious. Verse 14 again, they rejected God's statutes, His covenant, and His testimonies. Verse 15, that's like throwing out the Word of God, the revelation of God so that we would know. They followed idols, and thereby they became idolatrous, adopting the empty customs of nations. You could put verse 15 up there on the screen. Uh, uh, we won't go through into it now, uh, too much into it now, but just notice that underlined portion. They went after false idols and became false. It's one thing to tell a lie. It's another to become at your core a false person. That's what happens when you believe lies. Israel, they, they go on, they disobey all the commandments of the Lord their God. That's verse 16. They make molded images of two calves. Verse 16. They make a wooden image, the Asherah, and they worship the host of heaven. They worship the sun, the moon, and Venus especially, but all the planets and the stars. Verse 16 again, they serve Baal, one of the pagan gods that was most, uh, 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 the, the worship of which was most depraved, and that brings us to the next one. They burn their children in the fire as sacrifices to Molech, another god. Don't let anyone ever tell you that sin is not a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope for the church. It's a slippery slope for the culture. Things that were once obviously barbaric become acceptable. It's only a handful I don't want to overreact, but there are actual academics out there in the academy, professors, who are trying to take away the stigma of pedophilia. That's happening today. Well, we can be outraged at the world, but it shouldn't surprise us. Our concern should especially be for what might be happening among God's people in this culture, the slippery slope of sin. And it goes on. Israel practiced witchcraft and soothsaying. That's in verse 17. They sold themselves to do evil, verse 17. And they provoked God to anger, verse 17. Each of these assertions of sin by Israel implies that they had a responsibility to keep. A charge was given to them, but they didn't take it. They didn't lay hold of it urgently. They just kept going through life, going through the motions, and this can happen to us too. Take responsibility because time is short. I say here to take responsibility because time is short. The reason I put emphasis on time here is because we have here in Kings a historical picture. We're supposed to see that there was so much time for Israel to change, to repent, to turn, to embrace the, the statutes of the Lord and His commands, but they didn't. And so this, this period of kings, this, up to this period, it covers about 200 years from David to the, to the uh, exile of the northern kingdom. It's about 200 years. And they just keep going from bad to worse, from bad to worse. 
200 years may seem like a long time, but it's not a long time if you're just going to waste that time. The time gets wasted. It could have been 2,000 years and that's still a drop in the bucket. If you waste 1,999 of those years, and then the judgment of God comes. How much time has the Lord given to us? What are we doing day by day? How do we approach life? Have we stepped into the responsibilities the Lord has given us? Do we see that God has given us responsibility? Are we laying hold of it urgently? Or are we wasting the days and the weeks and the months and the years? Letting them go by and saying, I'll I'll, I'll become more earnest about following the Lord later. Another day, another time. I'll continue to work with the sin that I have here rather than lay it aside. Well, we've seen what they're held responsible for. Let's ask that second question. What was the outcome? So we're, we're wondering what the outcome of this failure of the people of God to take responsibility. We know the main thing. They were deported. Uh, there's, a, there's a text from Assyria, a manuscript from Assyria that talks about this. The king of Assyria says that he deported over 27,000 Israelites from Samaria. Now, we don't know if that means the city itself or the city and the surrounding region. Remember, there had been a previous deportation talked about in kings of the northern kingdom that didn't include Samaria because Samaria was such a strong city that the strongest nation on earth took three years. They were the, they were the greatest siege works on earth at the time, but it still took them three years to get into Samaria. That's how strong the city was. But God's not mocked. The siege was successful. This time, Israel's capital city of Samaria is destroyed. It's emptied. It's rebuilt. And then it's repopulated. And that process of deporting and then repopulating is something that Assyria has been doing for hundreds of years by this point. And they were tearing down national identity, taking away the, the revolutionary impulse from the people that they conquered. They wanted to demoralize them and separate them from who they were so they wouldn't have any trouble with them down the road. Let's read how this process goes in Israel. 2 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to read verses 24 to 28. Verses 24 to 28. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, the nation that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded... Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there, and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now here is a twist. The pagans that are brought in come face to face with a problem. And that problem is that that this land is identified with the Lord God. The true God, the one true God. 
that problem that they're having, it should point them to the Lord. Notice here again the mercy of the Lord over time. That's what this problem is, though. This problem is a mercy of God. It's a big problem. It's a terrible problem. Lions are killing people, but it has the people now crying out for mercy, doesn't it? It has them seeing their their sad state of affairs, their weakness. They're at the mercy of the lions, so they cry out for mercy. So they look up for a solution. Will the priest now teach the truth about Yahweh, the Lord? And will the people listen? Well, before we find out, let's note this application to our lives. Problems crop up in our lives too. They are unpleasant. Sometimes they're destructive. Sometimes even devastating. But those problems are opportunities to find the mercy of God because He is giving mercy. Remember what James writes, my brothers and sisters. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And it produces more than that too. The Scripture goes on. But for now, suffice it to note that God uses trials and troubles of all kinds to point us to His mercy, to have us crying out to Him so that we grow in Him. Well, let's see how these pagans fare with this opportunity to learn the mercy of God. And this time we're going to read uh, chapter 17, verses 29 through the end of the chapter, so a little longer portion, but I want to read the whole thing to us today. 2 Kings 17, verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made succoth Banath, The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashim. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Seraphites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Anamalek the gods of Sepharavim. They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among among whom they had been carried away. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. The Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourself to him, and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies." However, they would not listen, but they did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. The children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. 
You see the natural course of things? You see that natural course that's coming out, or should I say the natural course of things in a fallen world? Because the fallen world itself is an aberration of what God made, but it, has, it is for us the natural course of things. Do you see it? Do you see what the natural course of things is? The natural course of things is not atheism. The natural course of things is not monotheism. The natural course of things is syncretism. Syncretism is the idea of mixing religions, mixing Christ with other gods. Fallen humans always go this way. Now, when I said the natural course of things is not monotheism, you might have thought, well, the great religions of the world is Islam, there's Judaism and Christianity. Those are monotheistic, and they cover a large span of the population of the world. That's true, but as we all well know, just because someone says they belong to a religion doesn't mean that they're faithful in it. And so many in Judaism are polytheistic. They are syncretistic. Many in Islam are polytheistic. They are syncretistic. Many in Christianity are polytheistic and syncretistic. In fact, I think we could easily make a case that your atheist of today is not someone who doesn't believe in a God or the supernatural, but it's actually someone who believes in many gods. (laughs) They just don't identify it as such. That is the natural course of things. It's syncretism. It's many gods. It's the mixing of religions. Uh, Fallen humans always go this way. Israel went this way, and so did the peoples that followed them. Humans want to say, yeah, sure, we serve the Lord. I serve the Lord. I also serve all these others. We we never want to cross anyone. We we always want, in our our natural flesh, we we want to get along with everyone. And this is called love. But of course it's not love, it's hate. Because you can't. Lines must be drawn. Lines are drawn, whether someone admits it or not. And did you notice in the text as you read this that the text says they both fear the Lord, but then in verse 34 it says they don't, they did not fear the Lord. That's one minus one. And one minus one equals zero. Brothers and sisters, We are not immune to this. We are not immune to syncretism. We're not immune to letting in another God to worship. We are in our flesh drawn towards syncretism. We are. But the Lord is committed to us and to his glory. Take responsibility, brothers and sisters. Take the responsibility that God has given you in the gospel, in Christ Jesus. Take responsibility. The time is short. It will not be long before we see his face. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.